Well, good morning. Always good to be together. It was a privilege uh, to go and be a, a part of the men's charge this weekend. Yeah, we had a great time. At least he did. So it was, that's true. We did, we really did have a great time. There was about 50 of us men were able to get away. I know so many more of you uh, would have made it if you were able to. One of the blessings that comes from a weekend like this is, yes, we're able to be together, to confess sin together, to pray together, to study the word together, uh, to, to be reminded of the charge that God has given uh, men uh, to, to shepherd and to lead and to care for, uh, to protect and provide in their home, both spiritually and, and physically. But there's something that happens at a retreat like that where you're forced to spend a little extra time together than you normally would, in which you're able to actually meet others. You're able to go from a situation of possibly misunderstanding who someone is to understanding who they are. Every one of us, when we meet somebody new or somebody from afar, there is a great opportunity to misunderstand who they actually are. And with, underst- with misunderstandings comes the real danger of maligning them, of ultimately painting a picture of them that is inaccurate and possibly slanderous, not true. But with excessive time and energy together, we discover each other's weaknesses and strengths. And in this way, we're able to see more, hey, who, this is who this person actually is. And so understanding can lead us to a position of marveling at who somebody is, marveling from maligning to marveling, from misunderstanding to understanding. As we come this morning to Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, Paul makes it abundantly clear with passionate love that the churches in Galatia would gain a deeper understanding to make sure they do not miss this point of how the story of Scripture clicks in together. Because a misunderstanding of the story of Scripture can lead us and could lead the church in Galatia to a misunderstanding of who God is, to malign the person, the Word of God, as though He is somebody that changes His mind against His promise, or that He, even worse, is a promise breaker. The right understanding of God will shift our very understanding of who He is, which would draw us more accurately, personally, and passionately to surrender our lives over to His purpose and who He says that we are as those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the application for us this morning as we come to this text is that God would give us a greater desire to understand who He is in His Word, that we would shift more and more in every aspect of our life from those that maybe are tempted to malign God with our lives or our lips to marveling at who God is, that we would be captivated by His Word and His personhood that we would pursue God in all that we are, that this is the purpose and the foundation of our lives, regardless of our age or background, our goals and hopes for the future, our calling is to be a people who are making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that begins first and foremost with recognizing and understanding the very story of the Word of God, because that reflects the character of who God is. So let's look first at misunderstandings. This misunderstanding, we're going to look at verse 15 through 18 of Galatians chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, again, do do as always, follow along in the Pewback Bible in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, we want to give one of those to you if you will promise to, to begin reading it. We notice first that misunderstanding the story of Scripture, 
As we've already said, it will lead to maligning the character of God, to slandering the character of God. That's the danger. That's what's at stake here. He points out for us two elements of this. And the first in verse 15 and 16 is that God's eternal covenant with Abraham, God's eternal covenant, never-ending covenant with Abraham, included the promised Christ. It included in it the promised Christ. Jesus' coming was not a change of the plan. It was a fulfillment of the plan of the promise that was given to Abraham. Let's read together verse 15 through 16. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but rather referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Jesus. It is love that motivates a good teacher to try to make something more and more understandable. Our church has been blessed with a multitude of, of teachers, and we praise God for you and administrators that take the time and have taken the time through their lives to try to make the truth of the Word of God make more and more sense. It's love that drives that motive to not only communicate something and say, hey, here it is, but to be able to take it and make it accessible more and more and more to your life. It's like a parent desiring for their child to get it, to really get it, not just academically to get it on a test, but to really grasp it, to pour your life into it, to understand it. What's Paul call these, these believers? He calls them brothers. Adelphoi, beloved ones, brothers. His love is what motivates his desire for the church to understand the importance of understanding how the Abrahamic covenant of God fits in with the Mosaic Covenant, this temporary covenant we'll look at shortly. There's a lot on the table. There's a lot on the table with this. And, and as we walk through this book, I hope that you'll begin to feel a sense of, okay, Brent, I think I got it. Let's move on a little quicker. This is why this is so important. This is so very important. He's going to take such depths of this. Not only are we looking at this similar idea this week, but next week he's going to unpack it in even greater application because the danger of not understanding the Word of God will lead us to malign the character of God. And if you don't believe that God is trustworthy, just like in your life, if something happens, a trial happens, and you think there's no way God could be anywhere in this, that itself will begin to shade how you view and approach His Word. But the opposite is true. If you don't understand the story of the Scriptures... That can change how you ever approach the very triune God of all of creation. There's much at play and there's much at stake. He says, here's an example. He breaks it down for us out of love. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Covenant is not a word that's used very often in our world, but he breaks it down in application. And he uses a word in human terms that's also translated as, and can be applied as a testament and will. Those are phrases that are used in our culture. Matter of fact, you can go to a multitude of fine lawyers in this community and you can ask them, hey, can I establish a living will and testament? Now, those lawyers can't establish for you a covenant before God. That's above their pay grade. But they can't establish a living will and testament. Now, imagine in this situation, you and I came to an agreement. We might call them contracts, various blessings and consequences if not followed through. And you and I came to a contract personally. And after the ink was dried and it was agreed upon, all the terms were set afterwards, I just decided to say, nah, not interested anymore. 
but the contract is there. So what would you think of me? And even worse, what would you think about me if somehow I was all-knowing and I knew I was going to break it and I still established it with you? How would you view me? How would you view me? You wouldn't view me well. You would view me as a promise breaker. You would view me as deceitful. You wouldn't trust me at all, nor should you. And that's what's at stake if we don't understand the story of Scripture. That's why Paul goes to such great lengths to make sure they understand. God didn't change his promise to bring about Jesus. Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was coming before the foundations of the world. The question pops into mind, well, then why the law? How does all this fit together? Why does this matter? How does this all come into play? And that's what he leads them towards, to understand He is the promise-keeping God. The law that's given to Moses sometime later, it does not change the law that was given, the promise that was given, I should say, the covenant that was given to Abraham to bless ultimately through this offspring that would come to bring salvation to the nations. That particular promise is fulfilled in the seed who is Jesus. This law that's coming later, it doesn't change that. He's going to mention it being 430 years later in just a few moments. The later law doesn't change the promise of God because God is a promise-keeping God. That is important to understand right away. God is a promise-keeping God. So to understand how the story of Scripture fits together, that the law by God's goodness and kindness is given to Abraham. You remember that text we looked at? Abraham did what? And God counted it as righteousness. Abraham believed and God counted it as righteousness. Abraham did what? Believed. And he promised a seed that would come. And also he promised with Eve. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? In Genesis 3, he promised her that one would come from her line. One would come from from Eve. That would crush the head of the serpent. And he reiterates it with Abraham. One will come from your descendants, Abraham. He will crush the head. He will bring salvation to the nations. The law is given many years after that. So follow the story, catch the story. In verse 16, he says what? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So what he's telling him is, listen, the promise was given to Abraham, to the offspring, to one seed. So he didn't have two kids in mind, kid one being Jesus Christ and kid two being the law of God. There's not two, there's one. There's only Jesus. It points forward to Jesus, not the law, which is going to lead us to ask a question then. Why the law? If we can only be made right with God, if you as a sinner and I as a sinner against God can only be made right with God through grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, why was the law given then to begin with? If so many in the churches in Galatia are trusting in something they have done and are doing, like a resume to be right with God, why would God give the law in the beginning and there to begin with? It must be wrong. Now, you may be following the thread, but don't make the mistake that this is an issue today. The study was done in 2016 that found that 77% of Americans believe they contribute something to their salvation. 77%. 77%. That includes a multitude of people who are church active individuals. 77%, three out of four believe there's something they do that will make them acceptable before God. 
They're stuck in a law of their own creation. So the question becomes, that might fairly be asked, why the law? And that's exactly what takes place. God's eternal covenant with Abraham, it led to the promised Christ, not the law, to the Christ. Verse 17 and 18, we see that God's later temporary covenant, the temporary promise, temporary promise, that is the law, was given to Moses. It didn't ever change the promise. God does not annul his promises. He doesn't break his promises. He's the promise-keeping God perfectly. He didn't break his promise. The law never for a second threatened the promise of God. Verse 17 and 18. Let's look at this together. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, after that time with Abraham, and we have Moses comes on the scene, and the law is given 430 years afterwards, after this conversation with Abraham. He says, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So it didn't get rid of it. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham. God gave the law for a purpose, and it served that purpose perfectly. Now, depending on some spots, we'll say the law is 400 years. Other spots, we'll say 430 years. This, doesn't, this isn't important to know, super important, but it's good to know if you get confused. So the 400 years are that time from Abraham to the exile. 430 years is from the promise to Abraham to the promise given to Moses, the law. So that sometimes you'll see 400 years, sometimes you'll see 430 years. You don't need to know that but the more you know, okay? Just, now you know. I hope you on Jeopardy one day. But again, the law does not contradict itself. The law served a purpose. They are declared righteous by faith in Christ. The law is not a mistake. The law served a purpose. It does not change it for one second. The law that's given also doesn't mean there's no longer a purpose for Israel. There is a purpose for Israel, yet future but all of us are made one in Jesus Christ. You will only be forgiven by faith in Christ alone. He is our hope. The law was not given to make us righteous. The law was not given to make us righteous. The conscience that the Lord has written upon your mind was not given to make you righteous. You can try all you want to live the most moral life you can, and you should aim to, to live a righteous life. Your attempt to obey your conscience will not make you right before the holy eternal judge. Your conscience cannot do that for you. The written law of God cannot do that for you. That was not its purpose. The law didn't change the promises of Yahweh, the all-knowing, all-powerful one. So, again, it builds. The pressure is building. The tire pressure is building. It would lead one to the second understanding. From misunderstanding and maligning the person of God personhood of God, the, tri the triune God, to understanding and marveling, from maligning to marveling, from I don't get it to I get it, oh my goodness, he's worthy of my life. He's worthy of my life. See, secondly, understanding the story of Scripture, it will lead to marveling at the character of God. It's the only reasonable response. So we notice this in two ways. The Lord, the, the law of Moses, I should say, the law of Moses what did it do then? The law amplified. Here's what it did. It amplified Israel's awareness of sin and need for the promised Christ. The law of Moses amplified Israel's awareness of sin and need for the promised Christ. 19 through 21. Here we go. Ask the question. 
Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should, should come to know the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If you had never come to church before in your entire life, if you had never heard the story of Scripture in your entire life until two weeks ago, if two weeks ago was your first time you ever came to church, ever heard about the Scriptures, your very first exposure was, Genesis, or was Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. So all you've heard is what we've been preaching on every week, the last three weeks. You would be asking the question, okay, I get it. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now we have people in the church that are starting to be tempted to think, well, I also need to follow the law if I actually want to be right before God and with the people of God. So I'm adding the law to it. You'd be thinking logically and you'd say, well, then what's the purpose of the law? Why would God ever give something that people would misuse to lead people under captivity? He should have never given the law. The law must be bad. And that's exactly what Paul anticipates. You see that question? Why then the law? He wants the church to understand this, I think, for two big reasons. Number one, he wants them to see that God is good and the law itself is good. The law is not bad. But it served a particular limited purpose to bring about an awareness of the law. The second reason I think he gave it is so that as Christians, they would be able to understand the counter-argument that would be coming their way from the false teachers who would say, okay, hit me with this hot shot. You believe in Jesus alone. Why then the law? Did God change his mind? He wants the church, he wants the body of Christ to be strong to be prepared, to, get, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in them in Christ Jesus. He wants to arm them. This application is for every one of us in this room. Every believer, we can no longer live in a context in which we just say, hey, let's point them to that person. We're, we're to help equip the body for the work of ministry. Every one of us is called to give an answer for the hope that is in us in Christ Jesus. We must be prepared to give an answer. We must live for Christ the Lordship but we must be ready to make a defense. And this is one of those key texts to understand that the law of God is not bad. The law of God is good, and it served a good purpose. And that purpose, however, was not to make us right with God. It was to bring about an awareness of our need for God, our need for the Messiah, our need for the Christ. As an example, are mirrors bad? Is a mirror bad? No. A mirror's not bad. But a mirror gives you a much more accurate picture, doesn't it? So, for example, imagine in a, this situation, you went to bed way late last night, way late, and you woke up way early. You got like an hour of sleep. You know you do not look good when you wake up with that little bit of sleep. Except for my wife, she's beautiful 24-7, put that in there, I guess you listen to that later. But you know you don't look good. What does the mirror do? Does the mirror make you look worse? Or does it give you a more accurate picture of truly how not good you look that morning? Right? 
It's not the mirror's fault, but the mirror gives an honest reflection of truly our need, right, to get looking better that morning and quick. And that's what the law of God did and does. It was given so that Israel ultimately would, would see their need for a Savior, even more so. That they're even more broken than they ever thought. We're not going to read it, but Romans 4 and 5 make this point abundantly clear. And we'll give you Romans 5.13. It says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. That's what Paul says in this text. He says it was added because of transgressions. They knew they were sinful. They knew they were broken before ever God ever gave the law to, to Moses on Mount Sinai. They knew they were sinful. They knew it. God wrote it on their hearts. They knew they were broken. The conscience. They had interacted with God. They didn't have a relationship with the holy God, and they knew they were not holy. What the law did is the law said, okay, you think you're bad. Let's keep score and show you how bad you are. Do we have any first graders in here? Any first graders? Any second graders? Oh, we got one over here. Here we go. We're going to embarrass you real quick. What's your name? Chase, very good. What are the chances? All right. Chase, would you stand up for me? Very good. Excellent. Now everybody can see you perfectly. Okay. So we got Chase over here. Now, uh, oh, we got, we got Chris. Chris was, is a good athlete. Chris, why don't you stand up back there? Chris, I can see you turning red already. This is great. This is working out better than I ever imagined. Okay. So we got Chase and Chris. Now, if Chase and, and Chris played a basketball game together, they were trying as hard as they possibly can against one another. And somebody approached Chase later on and said, hey, Chase, how did, how did it go? He said, eh, not very good. I didn't, I didn't do very well. We said, oh, that's too bad. Well, how bad did you do? Well, I just didn't do very well. Okay. And actually, somebody asked him, he says, well, you know, he, he played my brother, and uh, I think I did better than my brother. So he starts to feel pretty good about himself. And then we say, okay, fine. Let's see how bad you actually did, Chase. Let's begin to keep score. And what would happen then if somebody asked Chase, well, how'd you do? He said, well, I'm losing 10,000 to nothing. Chris, right? Right away, it becomes totally different, doesn't it? It goes from, hey, that's all right. People lose to Chris. And then it becomes, oh, no. Right? Right? That is way worse. That's way worse. That's what the law of God does. The commandments of God, the civil laws for Israel, show them their brokenness and their need for a Savior, their need for the promised Christ that would come through the line of David. They need Him greatly because they're even more broken than they or imagined they ever could have been. It brings an awareness, an increased awareness of the transgressions they have against a holy and just God. Let's thank those two guys for volunteering for us. Very good. Appreciate that. So how long is this law put in place? What's the text say? The law's intended purpose, it was to function. It was given for a good function until when? Until the promised offspring or seed, that is, Christ Jesus should come. It served a good purpose to reveal a greater awareness that every one of us have for our brokenness. You know, I find very often when I meet with people, if they didn't come from a Christian background, it's not very hard to have to persuade them that they're broken. It's not that hard to point out to somebody that they're a sinner. We know that. We show our brokenness in different ways. But it can be hard sometimes to get them to believe that there actually is a perfect Savior. 
He is their only hope. He's not just somebody embodied in a set of teachings, but he has defeated death and risen again. And that good Savior, Jesus Christ, if they will but believe in him, they will have eternal life. He is coming again for his bride. He will come to extinguish wicked doers over all the earth. Perfect justice will be poured out perfectly. And there truly is hope for them. Do you believe that? There truly is hope for you and for me. And it's a living hope. And his name is Jesus. So the law shows us increasingly this is our need. This is our need. At the end there it says God is one. And I believe this is, you can write down Deuteronomy 6.4. I think this is really giving us idea of Deuteronomy 6.4. You've heard it called maybe the Shema. It's this hero Israel. It means to hear. It's this text, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul says God is one here. I think the reason that he does so is that communication that God is one for the Hebrew people, for the Israeli people. It communicated to them not just that God is one, monotheism, God is one triune God, but that God is unchanging. That's one of the ideas that really communicated. In a world of pagan fallen gods, there is one God who is eternally unchanging consistent in his nature, attributes, and being. It reflects the unity of God to say that God is one. And he is an unchanging, promise-keeping God. And he has made a promise to you, Israel. And he made a promise to Abraham to bring salvation to the nations among other promises. I think Paul intentionally puts this here, God is one, to bring back to their mind this remembrance that our God truly is trustworthy. A right understanding of the law and a right understanding of the purpose of the covenant of Abraham gives us as believers an increased awareness that our God really did keep his promise through a lot of brokenness in this world. He's still working. And that's a promise we cling to today unashamedly. God is indeed one. Verse 21. Verse 21. I think this greases the tracks up for what he says here. He asks a question and he answers it. My favorite kind of rhetorical question. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Just in case they miss it, what's he say? Certainly not. No. There's no contradiction here. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law is good and it served a purpose. The Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures are one. And they point us to Christ The law is good. All who will look to Christ find a perfect Savior. God does not break His promises like man. He is the perfect promise-keeping God. He knows every element of our lives. He knows every transgression that we've ever committed. And all who look to Christ have forgiveness in the seed, the one seed of Abraham, the one seed of God. King Jesus. Understanding the story of Scripture will cause us to marvel rather than malign the character of God. And ultimately, we go into verse 22. The message of the promised Christ, what's it do? It exposes every one of our true allegiances. What Jesus does is he confronts every one of us. You remember the gospel accounts. When Jesus comes on the scene, people have to answer the question. There's no like neutral ground. They have to answer the question, Who do you believe Jesus is? Verse 20 says what? Or 22. Verse 22. 
But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. I think that's an allusion back up just a few minutes ago to what the law does and what Scripture does. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might what? Might be given to those who believe. When Jesus came on the scene, we have multiple different groups of, of Jews. We have some group that believe, like the zealots, that they will be made acceptable before God, and God will come, and God will overthrow the Romans, but he's going to use them and their ability to swing the sword, to strike out and to kill the Romans. We have some, this group called the Ascends, that are like, kind of like monks. They, they, they went away from culture. They went out into the wilderness and had their own little society with the thought of, if we can practice this perfectly, then he'll come. Then Yahweh will come, the promise-keeping God, Yahweh. And you have the Pharisees and Sadducees and their own like set of beliefs of thinking, if we do this well enough, we're obedient enough, then maybe he will come and bless us and overthrow the Romans. Yahweh will keep his promise. Ironically, what happened? When Yahweh came, when the Christ came, the eternal Son took on flesh and dwelt among them face to face, face to face, shoulder to shoulder. What did they do to the promised Messiah? Some believed, but they would ultimately crucify the king. When Jesus comes on the scene, he causes us to reveal, ultimately, he reveals who we truly have our faith in. And a multitude of the people of God of Israel had their faith placed in the law of God rather than in Yahweh himself. That's what Jesus does for us today. You cannot hear the truth that Jesus gives of repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus said. He traveled along all over the place and he said, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. There's no neutral message we can give to that. You have to do something with that every time you hear it. Receive and respond, repent and follow, or harden and reject. And we can be polite. Have you ever been asked to do something and you didn't really want to do it, but you didn't have courage to say, no, I'm not interested in that? And you gave an excuse. Now, certainly in life, there's excuses that seem more legitimate. But he gave it, we give excuses to God. In Luke 14, D.L. Moody, who died at the young age of 62, D.L. Moody was an American evangelist. And he preached his last sermon over Luke 14 in Kansas City, Missouri in 1899. And he preached it from that text of this great banquet feast. And in that text, Jesus teaches. He uses this parable and he says, the invitations go out. And some people receive the invitation. And they send back an RSVP. They send back a message of an excuse. And they say, listen, and they give these business reasons. They're so busy with their business that they have to tend to, they just can't make it. They cannot receive the invitation of the great king of the banquet. So they RSVP and said, we can't make it. And they give their excuse. And then it goes out again, and it goes to a young man who is just married, and he's got his whole life before him, his whole vision for what his life will look like. And he gets back and says, I would love to come, but I cannot come. 
And in speaking and preaching this, he entitled this message, D.L. Moody, entitled this message, Excuses. And towards the end of it, he would die a few days later, by the way. This would be the last sermon he ever preached. He made this statement that I find it haunting. He said, suppose we should write out this excuse back to God in his invitation to repent and believe on Christ. The letter is addressed to the King of Heaven. While I'm sitting here in the convention hall in Kansas City, Missouri on November 16, 1899, I received a very pressing invitation from one of your servants to be present at the marriage supper of your only begotten son. I pray, however... Thee have me excused, please. What's our excuse? What the message of the gospel does is it causes us, if we've not yet come to Christ, to formulate an excuse. I've got my whole life set ahead. I've got my whole understanding for what my life and who God is set apart already, and I need you to fit it, Jesus. You will not do it this time. February 24th, 2019, what does your RSVP say? There's no doubt in my mind a great number of us, most of us, have turned and confided in Christ. And it's why this text gives us such hope. It's why we have such hope. Because attached to the invitation is not a resume, but it's the promise of the verses of verse 22 The promise to Abraham blossomed into the Savior, Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ, salvation is generously given to who? What's it say in verse 22? To those who believe. To those who believe. Jesus, I believe. I believe. I am yours. I'm coming. I'm coming to the great feast. Thank you for inviting me. I am yours. I believe all who look to Jesus find a perfect Savior. He knows every transgression we've ever committed. And in him we have perfect forgiveness. And an invitation to his table as joint heirs in Christ. Those purchased for a price. The broken body and spilt blood of Jesus the King makes us qualified by belief to come to his table Not as filthy ones, but as ones who have been made holy to enjoy fellowship with our good king. Isn't that a good word? Usually our next steps is set apart for this week to apply. Today is a little unique to that. Today the next steps is right now. Here's the invitation. Here's the next steps for you. It's literally going to happen right now. As the servers come, here's my question. If you have trusted and professed faith in Jesus, meaning if you've turned from sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, and you're in good standing with Christ and His body, the local church, here it is. Receive the invitation to the Lord's Supper with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There is an opportunity and an offering that is ours in Christ. We come together as those from different backgrounds and different experiences and different transgressions that we have committed and has been committed against us. But we come to his table, the table not set up by us, but given to us by the great king, Jesus Christ. He calls his disciples, those who trust in him, 
to partake of this as often as they do so, declaring his death and his resurrection. Just as Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, one day he will descend bodily. We come to the table in remembrance. We remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so those that partake of it, we have this promise before us. We have this promise of remembering and saying, Jesus, I believe that that you died on the cross for my sin, that your body was broken, your blood was spilt for me, and that by faith alone in him, I've been adopted and I'm welcome to the table that you offer me. I have been forgiven and I am yours. There's remembrance that takes place, but there's also an allegiance that takes place at the Lord's Supper. It's saying, I am identifying with Jesus Christ, not on my terms, but on his terms. The invitation is only his to, to offer, but it is my choice to receive that he's given me by faith in Christ. This is a great time of remembrance and memorialization, but it's also a great time of celebration. You see, it's celebration because it causes us to celebrate. A day will come when we will do this with him bodily. Now, Jesus ascended to heaven, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he is full aware of every one of us right now. And we are his through faith in Christ. But there is a moment that takes place that we must take of examination. In 1 Corinthians 11, the text that I read every time that we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to read for you verse 27 on to 30. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Remember, in the context, we've got people that are getting drunk on communion. They're staying all day. They're abusing this. They're dishonoring this memorial that is the Lord's Supper. He says, those that do so in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And he says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. We do not dishonor the memorial that the Lord has given us to the Lord's Supper as this active element of growing in our gracious knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens here is a family dinner, a family dinner in which the Lord has called us together. And we will spend eternity with those who are in Christ, and we rejoice because it's his body broken for us. It's his blood spilled for us. We come to him by faith, and we receive forgiveness of sins. And as the body gathered, we celebrate our good king. He's worthy of our life. He's worthy of your next step. Let me pray for us before we distribute. Lord, I do thank you. We thank you that this is your invitation to your table. We didn't get in a room and make this up. You gave it to your church as a blessing of gracious understanding for us that we would grow in the image and likeness of Christ. Help us, God, to believe who you are. Help us to trust who you are. We take this meal not only reflecting in our lives, asking that you would convict us of sin, asking God in areas where we hold bitterness against other brothers and sisters that we lay it down at your feet before we partake. And we celebrate, God, that it was Christ's body broken for us. It was his blood spilt for us so that we might become the people of God by faith. We love you and we give you glory in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. As we distribute, we'll hold on to the elements and we'll partake them one at a time together in just a few moments.